You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. So if you would open your Bibles to John chapter 14, uh, you're going to see we come to a very familiar passage, uh, but it's one that was part of the upper room discourse, so basically John 13 through 17, all take place in the upper room and at the end, probably on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, but we've been looking at the I am sayings of Jesus. And so we come to the fifth one this morning, and that is where Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Uh, but there's a much bigger context around that passage. Uh, so what I'd like to do is I'll read John 14, 1 through 14, uh, and then we're going to look at sort of this passage in terms of three particular words. Uh, and they just happen to work out this morning that they're all our words, uh, the thought of rattled, reassurance, and reproof. So rattled, reassurance, and reproof. Uh, so just follow along as I read John 14, 1 through 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So in this very familiar passage, again, the context is so critical. Here is Jesus hours before his eventual arrest, crucifixion. And you come to this first word, although it's not in the text, rattled. And, and I think all of us can associate with what it means to feel rattled, uh, that we're kind of shaken by things. Um, notice that how it begins, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Uh, the word trouble there means to be filled with distress, uh, thrown into confusion. Uh, it's actually a word that Jesus will describe and use of himself 
in John chapter 13, uh, speaking as, as a man, um, that, that his spirit was troubled. Uh, so kind of think of this thought of why would the disciples be rattled? What, what was going on in their thinking, in their world, that would lead them to, to feel as if they're being thrown into confusion or distress? Um, and so as you look around in your chapter and think of the context, you can probably think of at least one reason, and that is um, what Jesus has said in the previous chapter. So as they're gathered in the upper room before the institution of the Lord's Supper, they're preparing, getting ready for Passover. Uh, Jesus washes the disciples' feet, but then he also predicts and speaks of one who will betray him. Uh, and we know that that's Judas Iscariot. Uh, but at this point in time, as he speaks these words, even the disciples begin to wonder among themselves, is it me? Is, is Jesus talking about me? Will I be the one who betrays him? So that's very rattling in terms of their own thinking here. Is Jesus talking about them? In addition to that, think of what else might trouble the disciples is just observing and seeing that Christ is troubled after he speaks these words and predicts one who will betray him. Because John 13, 21 says Jesus was troubled in spirit after he said these things. The same word that's used in John 14, 1, where Jesus says to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled, be thrown into distress. And we could possibly present another reason is that after Jesus predicts this betrayal, then there's a kind of almost a, a little side conversation where Jesus says to Judas, go do what you need to do. And, and Judas abruptly leaves. That would have been untroubling and settling. To the others, why is Jesus suddenly leaving? We're, we're preparing for the Passover and, and he's, he's leaving. Did Jesus give him some special task? What, what's going on here? And then we can finally say certainly that Jesus speaks of Peter's denial and, and how private that conversation is is a question mark. But, but maybe even that enters into uh, the, the equation here that Jesus sees that his disciples are troubled. And I think given the day and age in which we're living, the fact that we're doing this via technology, not sitting down in our church building in our usual seats, says to us, we can identify with feeling rattled. Uh, and in our workplaces, as we communicate with colleagues via the internet, uh, many people are rattled. Uh, many people are going through times of feeling distressed and thrown into confusion. So there's a relevancy to this passage that should relate to all of us in one degree or another even as disciples of Christ. That it's not just the 12 or the 11, you could say, who were rattled and troubled. Uh, but you may be listening right now and you're also kind of rattled and troubled. Well, then we go to our second word, reassurance, because Jesus offers reassurance here. And, and you notice in verses really one through three, the reassuring statement is, first of all, he states the remedy. So in verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Doesn't just stop there and say simply get over it. But he says, trust in God 
and trust also in me. Uh, notice you have a double object of our faith. Our, our faith needs to be placed in God, who we read about in Psalm 121. Our faith needs to be placed in Jesus Christ, who is equal and fully God and man, who can identify with our struggles, with us feeling rattled. The Holy Spirit takes those things we can't even put into words when we are troubled and takes that into the Father's presence on our behalf. Uh, and, and notice how often here in this passage, uh, you have this word trust. Now, it may look like it only appears in verse 1. Uh, the word itself means to be fully confident in, uh, to, in the Old Testament, the thought to trust means to fully lean upon. Uh, so all of us probably are sitting down at this moment. You, you are trusting in whatever that piece of furniture is. Uh, you're putting your full weight, you're leaning on it. Um, that's what the word trust conveys. But the reason I wanted to point out the word trust is you notice later in the passage in primarily verses 5 through 14, you have the word believe that keeps popping up. That word believe and trust are the exact same word. So if you were to be consistent in translating it, you should read the word trust or believe all the way through. So when Jesus says, you know, trust in God, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, clearly he was saying here, these are his disciples. They, they do trust him. They do believe him. But is their faith displaying the strength that it should? Know that sadly, like us, when we are rattled, often we appear to have a weak faith, uh, a faith that is not fully confident uh, in the one who is speaking to us here. So Jesus offers this remedy. Here's the cure for a rattled heart. Uh, trust in God, trust also in me. Uh, that is both simple and profound because we know that is a continual process that is going on in us. But notice verses 2 and 3, when Jesus speaks about his departure, and you have phrases like, you know, he's going to prepare a place for us, uh, in his father's house or many rooms, and, and the word place again appears at the end of verse 4. All of these are emphasizing a, a dwelling place. And it's interesting to compare John 14 with Moses's farewell address in Deuteronomy, because there's many similarities. Both speak about the importance of being where God is, where God's dwelling place is among us. But there's also a very distinct exception or difference. In Jesus's quote-unquote farewell address here, he promises he's coming back, that his departure is not final like with Moses, but, but he will return. And before his triumphant second return, he will send the Holy Spirit, who is another counselor, one who is of the exact same nature as him, who will come and dwell in those who know Christ. So as you think of what reassurance there is, just in these words that follow the fact that Jesus looks at his disciples and he sees that they are troubled. He knows that they are rattled by what's going on. But there's also reassurance a little later in this passage in verses 12 through 14. 
So by now, when you look at verse 12, if you have a translation that says, maybe truly, truly, I say unto you, NIV has, I tell you the truth, right away, a little antenna goes up, and that says to you, what Jesus is going to follow this with is of extreme importance. And that's John's way of, of giving us an indication. Listen carefully to what Jesus is saying. And he follows that with anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. And in both verses 12 through 14, you have this reassurance, one, of the power and presence of God with us in prayer. And even as we are separated now, and, and we will close our time by praying, that the reality is the power of prayer is not any less than it is in the first century as it should be seen in the 21st century. What a reassuring note that I'm sure the disciples at this point didn't fully grasp, may have kind of clouded over as Jesus was saying this. Uh, you know, what do you mean we'll do greater works than these? Uh, and that's a question even we might ask ourselves as Christians. What does that mean that is Jesus only talking about those in the room here where he's saying they'll do greater works? Or was this a reference to the work of the church and the kingdom of God until Christ's return. In other words, we will do greater works in terms of quality, not quantity. That the, the message is going to go across all ethnicities. That, that we will see this message go out into the limits of the known world. That, that that is the greater work that we will see that is tied to the importance of prayer. And you see the qualification, Jesus says, I will do whatever you ask me in prayer in verse 14. We want to take that in its context to understand what verse 14 means. It would be wise to read John 17, where Jesus prays for the church and he prays for his disciples gathered with him. That that gives us the context of what it means to pray in his name. Because we don't want to run with this to some sort of name it and claim it theology, uh, which would not fit uh, with the word of God. So we, we've covered the thought of what it means when you're rattled. We've talked about the reassurance that Jesus gives his disciples then and now about when we do find ourselves troubled and overwhelmed and feeling distressful. But, but couched between these two bookends is reproof. Uh, I was struck by something I was reading uh, with Jesse from Sibs, a Puritan writer, uh, and in one of his sermons, he's talking about Matthew 12, where it says that Jesus uh, does not break uh, like, a, um, like a bruised reed, and he will not snuff out a smoldering flax. Uh, in other words, Christ's gentleness, and yet he's holy. And I think you see in Christ's reproof that it is both gentle, but it is much needed. Uh, and this reproof comes in related to two statements that come up here. And the first is in verses five through seven, and it's triggered by Thomas's question. 
so I think when we think of Thomas, we shouldn't automatically think of well, doubting Thomas. Uh, you know, he is a disciple. Uh, he has a faith, but at times it's weak. Probably no different than you or me. But look at his question that triggers Jesus's first reproof here. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? Now, Jesus has told them already the way. He's talked about what the cross will mean for him. He's talked about the conditions of discipleship. And so that is why he responds with these very powerful words in verses 6 and following. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I like how certain authors today will coin new terms, um, and, and it shows some real creativity. And in this case, it's creative, but it fits here. Uh, one author spoke of, this is a claim of Christo-exclusivity. Uh, I just like that word, Christo-exclusivity. Jesus is saying, I am not one of many ways or one of many different truth tellers or one of many different ways that you can find meaning and purpose in life. I am the definition and the source of each of these. And that's his response to Thomas saying, Lord, you know, you, you got to tell us the way. Jesus is affirming here, I've already told you that. Let me summarize it, but also sort of correct you here in your misapplication of what you're asking. So Jesus is the way. He is the exclusive way to the Father. He is the only way for us to have a relationship with God. Uh, just like for each of you listening now, the only way you could do this is you, you received an email that had an access code or a number that lets you in to this conversation and this study. The same is exactly true of Christ. We cannot have access. We cannot have a relationship with God without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But then he says, not only am I the way, I am the truth. I am the definition, the embodiment of, of what is real, what constitutes reality. I think of the difference with as people, and sometimes you and me, we look at our world right now, and the way it appears is not the true reality. Because God is in control, and, and God is still sovereign, and, and God still is on his throne, even though appearances might look the opposite. And even circumstances in your life sometimes might look as if, has God abandoned you? Uh, has God walked away from you? Is he uncaring about your needs? That, that can sometimes appear that way, but that is not the reality that is true for us in Christ. So Jesus Christ is not just the way and the truth, but then John speaks of him as he is the life. He is the source and giver of, of true life and meaning. And I think we can be praying that in the midst of COVID-19 and the time it will take for recovering, you know, that we expect to see in personal lives, in the economy, that, that people would come to see there is much more to life than just what you can acquire or the good you can attain. And you already have lots of people commenting online, you know, things like, oh, we really need to appreciate those who are close to us. It's a great time to spend time with family. Yeah, that, that's all fine and that's good, but we should want to see much more than that 
not just they're reacquainted with these things that are of greater value than material goods, but they would come to a realization of what it means to know Christ. And hopefully that's true for, for us as well, that maybe during this time of somewhat isolation, we'd spend a little more time in prayer, more time in the word, uh, more time consciously praying for one another in our own church, as well as our brothers and sisters in Christ. But then there's a second reproof that is also needed that comes on the tails of Philip's statement. And so you notice Philip in verse 8 says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. So imagine these conversations going on, and we can assume they're within earshot of each other. So others are hearing this. We know sometimes the scripture records a comment that is both an individual comment, but also a reflection of maybe what some of the other disciples are thinking. So in this case, Philip just says, Lord, you know, if you would just show us the Father. And you see Jesus's response in verses 9 through 11. But, but what would be helpful to understand is in those verses, you see the pronoun you. So it starts out, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, in each of those references, you, the pronoun, is actually plural. So Jesus is not just saying this to Philip, but he's kind of saying it to all of them. But then you have a slight change in verse 9 or excuse me, the end of that verse, verse 9, how can you say, show us the Father? That's a singular. So in other words, Jesus now kind of turns that general question to Philip in particular. Philip, how can you say this? And notice Jesus had already said in the previous verse, you have seen me for a long time. Now, how is it possible that, that this group of you know, 11 individuals, you've been with me for three and a half years, and you're saying you haven't seen the Father? Have, have you forgotten what I have done? Have, have you forgotten the miracles that you've witnessed, the teaching that I've given? So there is in this response a reproof, uh, a reproof that is gentle but firm, a reproof that is needed, and ironically, if you think about this whole scene, if you were to place yourself in this scene and say, who needed the most support at this time? I think we all would say, well, Jesus. Jesus was going to die. He was the one going to the cross. And yet, because he is such a gracious and merciful Savior, who does Jesus seek to comfort, counsel, and reprove? His disciples. He doesn't stop them and say, guys, wait a minute, you should be supporting me. You should be praying for me. You should be asking me. I'm the one who's going to the cross. So in this response and reproof, notice in verses 10 and 11, Jesus keeps emphasizing, you need to believe in me. As we just said, clearly the disciples had faith in Christ. What Jesus was saying here is at this moment, your, your faith is not as strong as it should be. It, it, it's weak. It, it's real. It's evident. But it's weak. 
as I was thinking about how can we take these three words and concepts, the thought of rattle and reassurance and then reproof, and how can we carry them with us this week? Uh, so I'd like to give you some suggestions that maybe would relate to all of us in one degree or another. And the first is simply, you will feel rattled somewhere this week. Uh, maybe you're the kind of person, you, you know, get up, you check the news, you're listening to something, and immediately when you hear something about COVID-19, you know you start to get anxious. Uh, when you read of so many more cases being diagnosed, that, that that's where your thoughts immediately run to. Well, when that happens, maybe stop for a moment and read John 14, 1. Remind yourself what Jesus said here. Do not be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. And that helps us to be both cautious, which is wise and discerning, but, but not filled with anxiety, not thrown into a state of distress or confusion. And if it's not COVID-19, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's just your concern for your grandkids, um, your concern for, for others in your family, uh, whatever that might be. Uh, again, go back to John 14.1. Read that throughout the week. Remind yourself of, of this is what Jesus is saying to us. Uh, the disciples' world was very different from ours, but yet we see similar emotions, and things that they would deal with, we deal with to different degrees. Maybe secondly, a suggestion would be, as you go through your week, look to Jesus Christ as your mediator and your great high priest. What, what an assurance to know that he has prepared a place for you. And he, he dwells with you now. He hasn't left you. His Holy Spirit lives in you. But heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. And maybe for us to consider, how can God use this present uncertainty in our lives, in our economy, that, that affects so many people in so many different ways, many in our own church who are facing possible layoffs or other things, or have been laid off already, that, that you have the assurance of knowing that God dwells in you in Christ. Uh, what, what a perspective. And to pray, Lord, how do you want to use this in, in my life to, to help me grow closer to you, uh, to reflect Christ? Uh, just as he was saying here to the disciples, your, your faith is not as strong as it should be. And that's a work of God in us, but it's a work that we need to continually yield to. And then maybe finally the thought of is when, based on Philip's comment, uh, God show us the Father, and then we'll do okay, is are we looking at our present situation uh, as a way for God to humble us? Not just to humble the unsaved, which I think we should be praying for, uh, that they would see the insecurities of what they put all their trust in, uh, just kind of slowly falling apart before their eyes. But, but do we pray that God would use this to humble us? That, that we wouldn't be guilty like Peter saying, well, Jesus, you're right there in front of us, but, but you need to show us the Father. That we wouldn't fall into that trap just even reading Scripture, 
that we're forgetting, reading scripture, we have read God. We have seen God in the word of God. And I wonder sometimes if, if that's something that often is missing in, in each of us at different times. We, we may read our Bibles, but do we read it saying we, we have seen God in his word? We, we have heard him speak. And as well in circumstances in our lives that we can say, God, we have seen your hand. And so my prayer for you and your prayer should be for, for me this week, uh, that these three words, that we would take them and apply them in at least these three ways as we navigate through this based on knowing that our hearts don't need to be troubled because we do believe in God and we do believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, and much like the individual said, God help, help my unbelief. Uh, God, you strengthen my faith as I seek to read your word, as I seek to come together even in this format with other believers.